Well, Dr. Nevin, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. We have worked with Christiana Care on this project for the entire year and a half of its existence. In fact, you all, as you know, were, were really the first ones to raise your hands when Avia began querying members about the nature of this work because it was so consistent with things you've been doing and, and the mission that, that you advance in the community. Maybe just as a, a starting place, talk just a little bit about uh, your experience in the project thus far, and then what I'd love to do is start to broaden that out and get into some of the bigger things Christiane has been doing in the community, particularly around your rebranding and all other kinds of exciting stuff. Uh, well, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you. You know, we, we've been uh, Avia members for a number of years, and I was thrilled that Avia chose to focus on Medicaid transformation. So consistent with our mission of serving the people who live in our communities, and frankly, so important. If we are going to be successful as a nation, we must invest in the health and well-being of all of the people. And the most vulnerable populations, I think in many ways, are best suited to the kind of transformation work that the Avia Medicaid Transformation Project has focused on. But let's spend a minute, before we go too much deeper on the Christiana side, maybe talk just a little bit more about your background and how you uh, ended up here. And you have a, a disposition and an orientation towards the underserved. Where did that come from and, and what motivates or drives that for you? So I'm a family physician and I, got interested in healthcare and made a commitment to going to medical school really from an interest in public health. Mm. So I've always come at, at practicing medicine with that perspective. In fact, I wrote my medical school application essay on the biopsychosocial model of health. Really? So when, this, when was that? that roughly. Was R- roughly. <laughs> you can give. You can give a range. It was a few decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I graduated from medical school in 1987, so okay. that, that will, okay. that will uh, give you a clue. But I think this idea that health is about not just medical care, but really, if we're going to help people achieve health, we need a much more holistic approach. And it absolutely means we have to pay attention to psychologic issues, mental health issues, and also social issues. Again, this is not news, but if you look at really what drives health, certainly there's a component that is about the medical care, maybe 20%, but the rest is about all of those social issues, mental health issues, genetic and environmental issues. So. I've always come at this with, with that bias. Also, I trained at Jefferson. I trained in, went to medical school there and did my family medicine residency there. And we did home visits all over the city. And it was one of the most impactful parts of my training. I mean, we were literally all over the city of Philadelphia. And I found it really inspiring, certainly sobering at times, understanding where people lived and. Uh, what they faced each day simply uh, in trying to exist. But most of all, I was inspired. People naturally want to take care of their kids and their family, and and they want to be able to contribute. And the opportunity to partner and be in homes and be in communities 
to lift everyone up is a really good reason to do uh, what we do. I comment pretty regularly that the term biopsychosocial is actually like a 115-year-old term. These are things we've kind of at yeah. least surmised for a long time. When you look around our healthcare industrial complex right now, you can't go to a conference, a session, sit in a board meeting without somebody saying social determinants of health or, or really recognizing the impact or the correlation of mental health and social factors. Do you view that with a sense of optimism? Are you excited about that? And do you think our industry is going to be able to grab a hold of this moment in time and all this energy and do something with it? So I think there's a moral imperative to make the change that's needed. One of the things I've learned over the last year, thanks to the Medicaid uh, transformation work, is to talk about social care rather than social determinants of mm -hmm. health. And I, I, I like that terminology mm -hmm. because it implies that we can create a system of care that addresses the social needs of patients. So it's an area that we've really invested in at Christiana Care. Like all nonprofit health systems, we know that we have to invest in our community. And I think traditionally that has meant really being a, what I would call a good citizen. But if we're going to impact health, we have to be willing to rethink that relationship with the community and actually talk about investing in the community so that we can create impact. So a couple of ways that we have done that. About a year ago, we made a $1 million investment in Reach Riverside. Reach Riverside is on the east side of Wilmington. It is perhaps the most vulnerable community in the city. And they were designated as a purpose-built community. So had the opportunity to get the technical assistance to really create an infrastructure that would impact housing, uh, education, and health. And so we've been a part of that effort truly community-led, anchored in Kingswood Community Center. We didn't make a gift to them, we made an investment in mm. them. And, and that's what is really different. And it was an investment not only of dollars, but also what resources, what expertise could we lend to this effort by partnering with them. And of course, as a healthcare delivery system with a particular focus on, 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 on healthcare. We've also rethought how we provide community benefit in general. So in a couple of weeks, we're actually holding an event. We have done almost $2 million worth of grants to a whole variety of community organizations identified through our community needs assessment as helping to provide solutions to what emerged as a result of that work. And we will manage that group of investments in the same way that we would manage any investment portfolio, meaning that we will establish targets and we will evaluate impact. These are long-term investments in the community, but we expect to see a return 
in the sense that by funding these partnerships, we will have the opportunity to impact health and outcomes. Uh, when you parse out the term gift from investment and then thinking about these investments in the community as part of a portfolio, talk a little bit about how you do think about the quote unquote ROI, realizing you're not looking for a you know, 7% return and an exit, but that you're looking for a different kind of return. Is it social impact? Is it is it uh, cultural impact? Or is there you know, five, six, seven years out, you're kind of saying, look, if we're doing the right thing now, we know it will have accretive value to the financial integrity of the system. Yeah. Or think, all of them. Yeah, I think we're looking probably more like 10 okay. plus years out. But we're all about creating value. And we've defined value as helping people achieve the, the health goals that are important to them and doing it in a way that respects cost and creates affordability. So we have embraced population health. We are walking toward risk-based payment. So we believe that if we create a system of care that honors the bio, the psycho, and the social, that we will have the ability to create value. People will be healthier, care will be more affordable, and, and some of the burden on society will be reduced. And as an organization, we will be sustainable. Again, we do not believe that our future is possible if we stay grounded in a fee-for-service model of payment. We believe that we must move from volume to value. That includes being willing to accept risk, not only the financial risk, but also the, the health risks. And we believe that by investing in social care, in particular in those organizations that we know can impact what is driving some uh, of the, the reduction in value, mm. if we invest in, we will see a return and it will come back to the community, it will come back to the people and families who live in that community, and it will come back to us as an organization. It will allow us to continue to do our work. If you're successful in doing that, of course, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to be lowering the demand for certain kinds of services. How do you start to think about this beautiful facility that has uh, all of the specialties and beds and, and other things that, that drive the financial veracity of the institution today if that demand goes down? And what's the plan for transforming Christiana Care? Yeah. Well, I think there will always be a need for some facility-based yeah. care. And if you look at what's happening demographically, particularly in the state of Delaware, we are getting older, and as a result, we are managing more and more chronic disease. So we are going to continue to need to have facilities that support the right level of care. At the same time, we know we have to build a level of care in the community that may not currently exist. So you've heard the phrase, right care, right place, right time, right provider. Mm. A lot of that work needs to happen in the community. So we have um, adopted a, a couple of mantras. One, if it can be done digitally, it should be, will be delivered digitally. Okay. If it can be done in the home, community, or smartphone, it will be done in the home, community, or smartphone. So there is so much opportunity for us to actually deliver what people need where they are in a way that 
works for them. And that's it's creating that sort of new system of care. I mean, the least expensive place to do that is in someone's home. Right, which is where you started which when you were where, with yeah, Je exactly, Jefferson. Right, so I think that there'll always be a need for some facility-based care, but we really are focused on building out that layer of care in, in the community so that people who are currently being admitted with a certain acuity can actually be cared for in the home with that same acuity level. So it, it, again, it's requiring us to really think differently about what it means to be sick. I find it so interesting that at the moment your investment thesis and strategy hinges around the community and hinges around building a portfolio of community assets with a 10-year time horizon. And it strikes me, uh, Janice, that you're probably one of the only institutions I think we've come across that's done it with as much clarity and intentionality mm -hmm. uh, as you have. We are a mission-driven organization. Our promise but to everybody says our promise to our community <laughs> is the Christiana Care way, and it starts with two really simple but profound words: we serve. And when we think about the work that we are doing and the work that we need to do, it really is in honor of our commitment to serving. It's serving our neighbors, the, the people that depend on us. Well, let's run with that. That's a great segue to talk a little bit about a rebranding Christiana Care recently went through. And during the unveiling of that rebranding, you commented, quote, as we look to the future, we have an opportunity to meet the health needs of the communities we serve much differently than we did in the past. We are imagining how we deliver care to deliver health, not just health care, to the people we serve. What was the motivation for a, a branding reposition and then and then really making sure you tied it to that message? Because mm -hmm. you've obviously been a mission-based organization right. for, you know, since 1888. 1888 yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I look back and we are not the same organization that we were 10 years ago, five years ago, I would argue even a year ago. We really have made a commitment to value we have made a commitment to population health and all that it entails. And I explicitly talk about our future is about becoming a system that impacts the health of all the people who live in all the communities that we serve. We have to move beyond someone coming in and being defined as a patient. I can't help that person achieve their health care goals unless I'm also thinking about their family, others who live in the house, their neighbors who live down the street. That's how we impact health. So we needed a way, I think, to do two things. One, clearly articulate to our community, both externally and internally, that we have changed and we are continuing to change. So this was a deliberate strategy to celebrate all that we have accomplished and all the change that has occurred, but also to signal that there's more coming around this when we think about our future. How have you deliberately sought to change the culture, recognizing that you're not the same organization you were a year, two years, five years, 10 years ago? Culture's everything. And you know, about three years ago, 
we as an organization decided that we were going to revisit our values and think about the behaviors that would support those values. Organizations that not only survive but thrive during times of change have resilient people, but even more importantly, they deeply connect to their core values and consistently demonstrate behavior in service to those core values. So I said to the leadership team, I said, We're, this will be a, a bottom-up approach. We will surface our values by connecting with each and every person in the organization. I said, I want to walk around at the end of this year and I can go anywhere to any site, talk to any caregiver, and they will be able to tell me how they impacted the work. And we did that. It was extraordinary. We had 400 peer ambassadors that created this network across the entire organization that allowed frontline caregivers to have input. And then that input could be delivered to leadership, discussion with the ambassadors back out to the front line for their input. What emerged was something, frankly, that I did not expect. I think for many organizations, the values are three to five words that hang on the wall. What emerged for us was a values statement. We serve together, guided by excellence and love. We serve together was a manifestation of teamwork. Everyone loves the team that they're on, but we wanted to make it really clear that for us to be successful, we had to those teams had to work across the organization. Excellence, not a surprise. It's in our DNA. It's about being exceptional today and even better tomorrow. The surprise was the word love. And to be frank, there were some parts of the organization that pushed back. You can't talk about love in healthcare. Really? And we had a dialogue around hmm. this. And I know I fell in love with the idea of love, because when you think about it, when you're caring for a patient and they describe their experiences, you made me feel loved. The nurses made me feel like I was part of the family. You know you've created an experience that we want for everyone. When caregivers say, I love my job, Again, you've created an experience for caregivers that's really, really significant. And again, perhaps not expected. What we've learned is when you lead with love, excellence is inevitable. Because when you lead with love, you have to make hard decisions, have hard conversations, and be willing to make the hard changes that are necessary to drive value. So we have created a culture that I think fundamentally is grounded in love and excellence. And we did it by engaging people. So we now have this incredible group of you know, 12,000 and growing caregivers who have learned to engage with the organization in a different way. So some of the work that we are now doing is, is what we are calling Making Tomorrow Happen, which is how do we engage our caregivers in being problem finders and problem solvers so we can continue to be exceptional today and even better tomorrow. I think it's a powerful referendum 
on a leadership team, you talked about going around and kind of querying you know, 400 Christiana Care colleagues, and you, you didn't ask about coding performance or average length of stay or any other metric, but you asked the question, how have they impacted the work? That, that is the core score. That is the core metric. That's powerful, and that does change culture. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I've always believed that you know, that listening to frontline, listening to the people who are doing the work, delivering the care, is absolutely critical. They are the best people in the entire organization equipped to share with you what's really going on. And frankly, that includes patients and families. So if you think about what's happening in healthcare now, the whole movement around consumerism, it's fascinating. The people that we impact have to be our partners if we don't understand their needs, how they want to communicate, how they think about health, we simply can't be, be successful. So I think you know, whether it's our caregivers or, or those that we serve, we need to be engaged in, in conversations that are different than what we have done traditionally. I completely agree with that. I, I think there is too much of our industry um, that has either forgotten or never really understood what health and healthcare really is about. Fundamentally, what we all ought to be in the business of doing is improving people's health. Yeah. yeah, and I think, again, sort of this idea that love makes you do the hard things, I think it's also helped us really focus on our caregivers and their health and well-being. If they're not engaged, if they're not finding joy and meaning in work, it's going to be very challenging for them than to deliver the kind of care and serve in the way that we, we want people to be served. And so some of the things that we've done over the last year, we increased the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Again, we want to support people who live in our communities and make sure that they're making a wage that allows them to support themselves, support families, and, and be able to access health. We just announced that come July, we will provide paid parental leave for moms and dads, 12 weeks of paid parental leave. Again, as a health system that you know, understands how important those first few weeks and, and months of life are, we want to be able to invest in our caregivers in that way. We launched a community service benefit over the last year. So each caregiver can spend eight hours working for a nonprofit in the community. Mm. We know that when people give back, it, it also um, brings joy. So it's another example of how I believe we started to change the conversation and change our thinking as a result of, of the culture that we're still developing and will continue to develop. Talk just for a minute and about how you have approached the community and triaged the things that the community needs most, and then what is the process that you've gone through to either develop a program or advance a program uh, that you believe will be capable of addressing those needs? Mm -hmm. So one of the pieces of work that we did very differently this time was our community health needs assessment. And one of the innovative approaches was we hired some teens who live 
in some of the communities to actually help do some of the community assessment work, kidding me. which was really I had pretty no idea cool. That is yeah. really cool. <laughs> um, I bet they love that. They, they love that, and and teens will tell it like it is. You know, yes, so if will. you're <laughs> if you really want to understand what's going on, you know that, that that's a group that that you need to listen to. So I, I believe that we have, as a result of doing that work differently, deeper connection to the community and those community needs. So that that's fundamental. And then that allowed us to really think very uh, intentionally about programming and investments. And, and we've talked a little bit about that already. You know, I think one of the areas where we've still got work to do, and I know we're doing some learning from others as part of the Medicaid transformation work, is around mental health. One of the innovative programs that got started this year uh, as a result of seeing the data and understanding the needs for some of the populations that we're managing for which we're at risk resulted in a program that is the Center for Hope and Healing. So everybody is familiar with a patient-centered medical home, primary care typically, and often behavioral health services are embedded in a primary care patient-centered medical home. The Center for Hope and Healing actually flips that so it's the mental health practice that, it, that is the core of the patient-centered medical home. And primary care and social care and other services are actually wrapped around that mental health practice. So it's a different way of approaching, again, a very vulnerable population, people with serious mental health, often with a multitude of medical issues that typically don't get addressed and result in overutilization of the emergency department or frequent hospital admissions. These are people who often fall through the cracks. So this was a program that specifically from understanding the data coupled with the sort of qualitative needs of the community. And has, it's been up and running now for about six months, and it's extraordinary. Wow. Again, I think it's this whole concept of reimagining care. Right. And, but we also realize we've got to build the business case. The, the payment model needs to reflect this different way right. of delivering care. So we've also been aggressive in seeking out opportunities to be paid for value. So let's talk about that <laughs> because you have some success at this at the moment. You have an arrangement with AmeriHealthCaritas of Delaware. And, and Highmark Health Options. And Highmark Health Options. And those are the two Medicaid MCOs in, in Delaware. Correct. So tell me how those came to be and how, how those are constructed. Yeah. So we have taken advantage of pretty much everything Medicare has had to offer, bundled payments, independence at home, Medicare shared savings, ACO. And, and all those programs are really upside only. But we've been looking for an opportunity, particularly with the Medicaid population, to take on downside risk. So I am nothing if not determined. <laughs> 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 so, you know, a good we preamble for I any know, story. We, you know, we started actually a few years ago with one of the MCOs in the state and went down a path that probably took us a couple of years to create something that we believed would be would create value. 
only to be told no by the state. So we took another uh, stab at it with a different MCO, with a slightly different model. Um, spent about a year working on that, again, only to be told no. So third time a charm, and I think it was AmeriHealth, Caritas, and Highmark Health Options are the two MCOs. At this point, we had a lot of learning about what what worked and what didn't <laughs> right. work. You knew what the state was going to say. And frankly, no to. they were you know they the MCOs were were good partners, and we 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 were a different organization too. So we were able to change the conversation and actually fairly rapidly get to signed contracts. We are taking up and downside risk on the Medicaid patients that come to our practices. It's a first-of-a-kind contract for us, a first-of-a-kind contract in the state, and really the beginning of, of what I believe will start to fairly quickly accelerate our ability to bring that payment model to scale. So, you know, we, we've done lots of experiments, lots of pilots. This is the year where I've sort of said, you know, we've, we've paid our tuition, we've graduated, this is the year that we, we really start to do this work in earnest and really start to think about how we bring it to scale. So we are shifting the ACO to an up and downside risk model. And we also will have a contract with a Medicare Advantage provider in the state, again, to take on up and downside risk. I think by the end of this fiscal year, June 30th, I believe that we'll have at least two or three more other risk contracts. We have to shift the system. We can't nibble around the edges. It won't produce the kind of change that's necessary to impact health and make care affordable. And if you've been able through both the Highmark Health Options, AmeriHealth Caritas, this MA risk contract, how are you trying to control for or minimize the variation between those contracts and the quality measures. In an ideal world, there'd be one scorecard. Sure would, but as yeah. you well we know, don't that, that we don't world. live in that world. <laughs> I think you know the good news is for Medicaid, there those contracts are are really quite similar, yeah. and we were able to design them in that way. Again, as I mentioned, we've got a fairly sophisticated data platform and a fair amount of experience managing different quality metrics. So we've got the, the capability inside the organization. We've got the tools to support managing different scorecards. And, and we've got the talent also. You know, so I, I do think it would be one of the things that would be extraordinarily helpful you know, if we could create a common scorecard that worked across different payers. That would be something that we should work towards. It would make it, I think, easier then for people to participate in some of these more complicated contracts. Two final questions. Do you see a world two, three, four years out where you will have the appetite to take a, a fully capitated payment for a community or a population? Absolutely. Okay. We're looking for that opportunity. 
And do you feel that you're on that pathway right now with your, your MCO partners? Absolutely. It's amazing. I was hoping you'd, you'd say that. There, there is <laughs> unequivocally so. Unequivocally. <laughs> there is, I, I think you know this as, as well as anyone, there's obviously tremendous innovation in Medicare and commercial, but we've not applied those lessons in Medicaid well. I think there's like 3% penetration in Medicaid MCO contracts for mm -hmm. alternative payment models. And that's like the space where we have, there's no more money to pump into the system. Right. Generally, we have to solve the efficiency gap problems across that biopsychosocial right. spectrum. Okay, last question. Right, so I would just oh, say yeah. I oh, agree. Please. I mean, I, I think, and, and uh, there, some of my colleagues might disagree with this, but if you look across the system, I, I believe the resources are there. We have to deploy them differently in order to have the kind of impact that we're looking for. Right. And with regard to Medicaid, I, again, I think this is the, you know, the opportunity that is Delaware. We are a small state. We can actually bring things to scale at a statewide level more readily than larger states that, that may have more complexity. So I, I do believe that we will continue to have opportunities in Delaware to really begin to change how we get paid across the state so that we can then perhaps demonstrate how it can be done for others. Yeah, and, and to be able to demonstrate why investing more money in the system really will yeah. create a 10-year uh, social return, tax yeah. and budgetary return. It's a false choice, I think, to say, should we add more money in the system or be more efficient with a system that is underfunded? And the, tr the truth is, for every dollar we put in the system, it, that dollar lives below its use yeah. because yeah. it's not efficient. Yeah, and I'm really intrigued by some of the emerging models that also bring in the resources from some of the social programs, housing, food, for example. Marry that with what we're spending uh, on that population for health care, making sure that the individual gets what they need and it comes from the right place. I'm, I'm really excited about what I'm seeing yeah. emerge there. And you're leading this and it's exciting. The last question I'll ask is, is a, a type of question I always ask at the end of these conversations, which is as you think about the future, you know, or, I mean, typically I would say, are you optimistic, pessimistic? Why are you optimistic? You're an optimistic person by nature, so I'm not gonna give you an out <laughs> there. But describe your 10 year headline goal, 10 years from now, as your investments come to demonstrate their quote unquote return what do you want that 10-year headline to read? What does uh, excellence look like? It's Delaware is one of the healthiest states in the nation as a result of the work around changing delivery payment and the investments that we've made in social care. Well, I am leaving this discussion as optimistic as ever that not only are you on a path to achieving that, but I, I know we will continue to learn from this as your colleagues and be able to collectively disseminate those learnings to other communities. So thank you for the time. Really fun discussion, Dr. Nevin, and um, looking forward to the work in the uh, weeks and months ahead. Thank you, I really appreciate the opportunity.